Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is Sandra Jakes, and I am the supervisor of legal research and content development for Legal One. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series highlighting major U.S. and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions, why they are relevant today, and how the law has evolved since that decision. Today, we are discussing the standard for addressing a retaliation claim resulting from a complaint of violations of Title IX in a school district in light of the major 2005 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Jackson versus Birmingham Public Schools. With me today, I have special guest, Rob Achera, Director of Member and Board Services, NJPTA. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Sandra. New Jersey PTA is very thankful for this partnership that we have with Legal One through this entire series of the podcasts. Great, thanks. Now, turning to the Jackson case. In 1993, Roderick Jackson, a teacher, was hired by the Birmingham School District Board of Ed to serve as a physical education teacher and girls basketball coach. In August of 1999, Mr. Jackson was transferred to the high school in that district and discovered that the girls basketball team was not receiving equal funding and equal access to athletic equipment and facilities and that the lack of adequate funding, equipment, and facilities made it difficult for Mr. Jackson to perform his job as the team's coach. In December of 2000, Mr. Jackson began complaining to supervisors about the unequal treatment of the girls' basketball team. According to Mr. Jackson, his complaints were ignored and the school district failed to fix the situation. After Mr. Jackson complained about his perceived problems pertaining to the girls' basketball team, he began to receive negative work evaluations and ultimately was removed as the girls coach in May of 2001. Mr. Jackson continued his employment as a teacher within the district, but he no longer received supplemental pay for coaching the team. After the Board of Ed stripped Mr. Jackson of his coaching duties, he filed the federal lawsuit claiming that the school district had violated Title IX by retaliating against him for protesting the discrimination against the girls' basketball team. The Board of Ed filed a motion to dismiss with the court, trying to get the case thrown out, claiming that Title IX's private cause of action does not include claims of retaliation. So his retaliation claim here is based on the fact that once he started complaining about what he felt was inequitable treatment towards the girls, they stopped letting him be the coach, and then he started getting negative reviews in his job as a teacher. Both the District Court and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed Mr. Jackson's claims. That means they threw the lawsuit out. Uh, 
And this case was appealed to the US Supreme Court. The US Supreme Court did grant certiorari, which means they agreed to hear the case. Now, before we go forward with what the court ultimately found, just to clarify a few of the legal terms in here that you need to understand. The first thing is that the basis of the claim is a retaliation claim. And as we discussed in an earlier podcast, when we talked about discrimination issues, a plaintiff, the person bringing the lawsuit, must establish that the district took an adverse action after or contemporaneous with the protected activity of the plaintiff. So you have to be able to show that the district did something even worse to you once you exerted your rights, once you complained that there was a violation of law, there was, in this case, a violation of Title IX or if it's an OSHA violation or anything like that. As long as you've made a good faith assertion of, I think this is wrong, you are allowed to do that. And the district is not allowed to be mean to you because you put a complaint against them that they might have to do something about. In addition, the law against retaliation requires that a causal link between the protected activity and the adverse action exists. So you've got to be able to show that because you complained, this is what they did to you. The district may have defenses of, no, we didn't do it to him in retaliation. We did it because he was a bad employee or he broke this rule, or they may have other reasons. You have to be able to show that there were no other other reasons. It was done simply because you complained and exerted a legal right that you have to say, I think something is wrong. Do understand you do not have to win the underlying discrimination claim to win in a case of retaliation. So if you file a claim, I'll use myself as the example, I file a lawsuit claiming I feel I've been discriminated against because I'm a woman. And then I feel that once I put this claim out there, my employer started being even meaner to me. They started making my job harder or making things uncomfortable at the office. Now, if we go to court and I ultimately lose the sex discrimination claim that I can't prove they did anything to me because I'm a woman, I could still win the retaliation claim if I can show that once I exerted that claim, once I put it forward, they started being even meaner to me and doing all kinds of rotten things to me because I made the claim. So it is possible to lose the underlying claim, but still win the retaliation claim. So remember here, the claim of Mr. Jackson is, is once he alleged the discrimination about the girls basketball team, he was stripped of his coaching position, which was extra income for him. And then he received negative reviews in his day job. Now within the Jackson case, there is a little explanation of what Title IX is. Most people seem to think of it as, you know, if the boys have a team, the girls get a team. And there's much more to it than just that. So in the Jackson case, the Supreme Court explained that Congress enacted Title IX in 1972, not only to prevent the use of federal dollars to support discriminatory practices, but also to provide individual citizens effective protection against those practices. Title IX broadly prohibits a funding recipient from subjecting any person to discrimination on the basis of sex. Now to take the legalese out of all that, if the school gets federal funding or gets government funds, they are required to follow the laws of Title IX. So wherever you are in the schools, there's some sort of government dollars coming in, whether it's a school lunch program or a breakfast before or after the bell program or whatever it is that you're doing that you have government dollars subsidizing whatever is happening in the school, that ties the district to having to follow Title IX requirements. Because what they're going to say is, we're not going to give you money if you're not going to follow our laws. 
The court went on to explain that more than 25 years ago, they held that Title IX implies a private right of action to enforce its prohibition on intentional sex discrimination. Now that's a mouthful. So again, let's take the legalese out of that. What it's saying is Title IX gives you a right to assert a claim if you feel that there was something done because of sex discrimination. This only applies to gender. So when we went in the other podcast talking about all the discrimination protected classes, the only protected class here that would apply would be gender. Now there have been LGBTQ claims that have come under Title IX as well. Um, to take the, 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 the legalese out of that, basically it's saying a, a biological boy is not acting as a biological boy shirt, a biological girl is not acting as a biological girl shirt. Those are the complaints within a Title IX case pertaining to LGBTQ cases. So that's how LGBTQ can also apply into Title IX. The other important word to point out is intentional. And I'm gonna explain that a little more in depth as we go forward, but this is not negligence. You have to actually show that the district for a Title IX claim knew there was a problem and they purposely chose not to do anything about it. Now, understand that you can have multiple claims. You can have a negligence claim under regular law and a Title IX claim, but the Title IX only pertains to something that you can show the district had knowledge of and they chose to ignore it, okay? And the court went on to explain that Title IX shows a form of discrimination because the complainant, the person complaining something was wrong, is being subjected to differential treatment. They gave an analogy where they said, when a supervisor sexually harasses a subordinate because of the subordinate's sex, that supervisor discriminates on the basis of sex. That same rule applies when a teacher sexually harasses a student. Thus, discrimination based upon a recipient's deliberate indifference, again, they knew about it and they chose to do nothing about it, includes a teacher's sexual harassment of a student or sexual harassment of a student by another student. Regarding the retaliation claim, Title IX does not require that the victim of the retaliation must also be the victim of the discrimination. So in this case, the coach is not playing on the basketball team, so he's not losing out as a basketball player, but he is reporting what he sees as a wrong, that the girls aren't getting the same thing as the boys. So he doesn't have to actually be a player on the team to make the report about the team, is what the court is, is talking about there. Sexual harassment and sexual violence are unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. Conduct of a sexual nature includes both physical and verbal conduct relating to the victim's gender, sexual orientation, or sexual identity. And the key test would be the conduct would not have occurred but for the victim's gender or sex. And there are typically two kinds. You have the quid pro quo, which is the, if you don't do this for me, I won't do this for you type of thing. You have to, do, you have to give something to get something or the hostile work environment. Or for a student, it would be a hostile educational environment where you're making the place so unbearable because of what their gender is that they have a claim against you. You're not allowed to do that. So it, with the work in the school hostile environment, it's based on sex that is sufficiently severe, persistent, or pervasive to limit a person's ability to function in the workplace or create a hostile or abusive working environment or school environment. So compare this with students, they have a hostile educational environment, which is so severe, persistent, or pervasive, so as to limit a student's ability to participate in or benefit from an educational program. And remember, sports are also educational programs. 
Now, when you're going to evaluate whether Title IX has been properly applied, there is a three-pronged test. There are three things that you look at. The first one is substantial proportionality, and that looks at whether participation opportunities for female students are provided in numbers substantially proportionate to their enrollment at the school. So it's not necessarily you have to have a 50-50 split of boys and girls team. If the predominant number in your school, if it's an 80-20 split of 80% boys, 20% girls, then the sports teams have to at a minimum reflect an 80-20 split. The second prong would be expansion, whether the institution can show a history and continuing practice of program expansion, which is demonstrably responsive to the developing interests and abilities of the female enrollment at the school. So if you don't have the required programs for the, to meet the satisfy the first prong, if you can show we're working towards getting it, we are implementing things, we are doing what we can, you know, the program takes time to build up, it's not instantaneously going to be exactly the same or the equivalent of the boys, but we're building it up, we're working on it. That can show that you're still in compliance with Title IX. Then the third prong goes along with an accommodation of interests. If the first two prongs are not met, so the not equal or the not being expanded, a district may show its compliance with Title IX by demonstrating that the interests and abilities of the members of the school's female enrollment are being fully and effectively accommodated through the programs presently offered by the institution. All right, again, to take the legalese out of that. Yeah, if the girls don't want a program, you don't need to provide it. If you don't have any girls that are interested in making this up here, but if you don't have any girls that are interested in playing basketball and you can't get enough people to come out and try out for the team, then you're not gonna have a girls basketball team. So it's looking at things. It's not just what do you see on the surface, it's, it's looking underneath the surface. And that will go to another comment of, you do need to look beyond the numbers because you can't just take them at face value. A common complaint, and we'll use this as another example, let's say a school district provides equal quality of equipment and uniforms for both the boys and girls teams. So they have gotten them the best of the best they have everything that they say they need and that they want. But it turns out, for whatever reason, the boys' equipment cost more than the girls' equipment. So on paper, the district has spent more money on the boys. But this is not a Title IX violation because they gave both the boys and girls the equivalent of what they needed. You know, to take it out in the real world, anyone that's bought clothes, you know, sometimes men's clothing is more expensive. Sometimes women's clothing is more expensive. We don't necessarily know why. The same thing can apply with sports equipment or sports uniforms or jackets or any of the other number of things that are supplied to a sports team. So you actually have to look at the details, not just what you may see as a number on a piece of paper. Now, getting to what I discussed a little bit earlier, there are additional provisions under Title IX where you have to show that there was knowledge and that there was deliberate indifference. Schools and personnel will be held strictly liable for a violation of Title IX against a student when an agent of the district, that means someone working for the district, in a position to take remedial action, so someone that has power or authority, has knowledge that the harassment is occurring and exhibits deliberate indifference to correcting the situation. This is the, they knew about it and they chose to do nothing about it and they were in a position to do it. Strictly liable means there is no defense. If it comes to light that there was something wrong, you knew about it, you chose not to do anything about it, that's it, there's liability there. I will point out there was a very recent case in New Jersey, it came out within the last year, where a staff member had a personal relationship with a student. And when they went to file a Title IX claim in that case, they tried to claim that the staff member that was the offender, 
was the district personnel that knew about it. So that's how you could hold the district liable for Title IX. And the court said, no, the perpetrator was a wrongdoer. What they were doing was not in the course and scope of their employment. So you cannot hold the wrongdoer as the person with knowledge within the district. It has to be someone else in the district knew that this, in this case, it was a, a man, this guy was doing inappropriate things and then purposely turned a blind eye and didn't do anything about it. So going back to the Jackson case, the ultimate holding is the US Supreme Court reversed the Northern District of Alabama US District Court and the US Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. They sent it back, they reversed and remanded, which means they sent it back down to the lower court to uh, finalize the case. And what the US Supreme Court said was, retaliation against a person because that person has complained of sex discrimination is a form of intentional sex discrimination encompassed by Title IX's private cause of action. So they're saying the claim that the coach brought here is legitimately covered under Title IX. The coach stated claim of discrimination on the basis of sex was actionable under Title IX. The coach could assert retaliation claims even though he was not the victim of discrimination that was the subject of his original complaints. So again, this goes to, he doesn't have to be a member of the basketball team. He just observed something wrong was happening and he reported it. Finally, the Board of Education had sufficient notice that it could be subjected to private suits for intentional sex discrimination in the form of retaliation. What they're saying is, is that the school had noticed. There's proof here that the school had noticed that there were problems and that there were complaints and it's gonna go forward to possibly either having a jury decision or something like that at the lower court to decide whether they knew about it and chose not to do anything. But at this point in the litigation, there's enough there to believe that it should go forward. Now do understand the school districts have obligations under Title IX. Remember Title IX says no person shall be excluded on the basis of sex from education programs or activities receiving federal assistance. In light of that, school districts must have a policy of equity in employment and non-discrimination, disseminate the notice of non-discrimination, and designate at least one employee to coordinate its efforts to comply with and carry out its responsibilities to be free of discrimination. So you may have both affirmative action officer and the Title IX coordinator. And a lot of districts, that's the same person, but in some districts, they are two different people. And the district must adopt and publish grievance procedures providing for prompt and equitable resolution of student and employee sex discrimination claims. Now, there were new regulations that came out in 2020, and I want to say a few things about that. In November of 2018, the U.S. Department of Ed's Office of Civil Rights published proposed regulations, and those regulations became effective as of August 14, 2020. The new 2020 regulations regulations contain updates to due process requirements of claims of violations of Title IX, as well as an expansion to the definition of what constitutes a school district's program or activity. If you choose to read the 2020 regulations on your own, please understand that while there is still a grievance process for any alleged Title IX violations for all students, some of the new regulations only pertain to colleges and universities and do not pertain to elementary or secondary schools. Examples include at the college level, you have a live hearing and the ability to cross-examine witnesses on the allegations and the merits. This is not required at the lower level schools. Additionally, the new regulations discuss college and university Title IX liability for fraternity and sorority organizations. That's not something that's applicable to the schools at the elementary or secondary level. 
Now you should stay tuned because with the new administration, there may be other issues pertaining to Title IX that could come forward, but these are the regulations that were passed last summer and this is where we are right now. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, do understand that Title IX can be filed simultaneously with other claims of liability. So you could file a Title VII or a discrimination claim, something under NJ Lab, the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. As long as the basis is gender related, as I've talked about here, that serves as the protected class that would allow you to file a Title IX claim in addition to any other claim that you might have on that basis. Now, please do understand this podcast is just a brief overview of Title IX provisions. Every case has very fact-sensitive issues. And since I'm only giving you a general overview of the law, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. There are many nuances that pertain to individual cases. So if you feel that you have a situation or you're aware of a situation, you should contact your own private attorney or speak to someone that you trust to give you guidance on legal matters. So with that being said, I'm gonna to turn to bring Rob into here and say, and say, Rob, welcome aboard. And let me say, how do you think schools and parents can work together to promote a greater understanding of a student's Title IX rights? I think education is an important aspect of this because especially from just hearing what Sandra was talking about, um, especially with the three prong tests that a lot of times when people think of Title IX, I remember back when I was in high school thinking of Title IX and how, why different sports were played in different seasons. It was always just in people's minds sometimes just about this uh, one sport equals the other sport where sometimes it's not necessarily just that. It's not like a cookie cutter approach to it. you got to make sure that all three prongs of that test are there. Um, a lot of times, if we just are educating and parents make sure they go to, in the case, you know, probably the athletics or activities director to determine why a sport is or is not there, um, it would make it a lot easier and maybe a lot less, you know, frustration or drama sometimes when there's um, angst about things like this. I remember when I was in high school, um, there was no boys lacrosse team and the boys lacrosse boys felt there should be a lacrosse team. And there was a big, um, you know, uh fight about it and you know at the end of the day the school district was fine with it because the it did then meet the three-pronged test there was never a want or need for boys lacrosse during that season so once there was a want or need and it did fit into the place where there was one less boy sport during that season than uh another sport it, the board of education was fine with it the school district was fine with it. And now and to this day, there's still boys lacrosse being played in that school district because of the want need. And then seeing now through this presentation, it passing all three prongs of the test. Great. Um, what do you think if a parent or student feels that a student may have been subjected to a Title IX violation within a district regarding the availability and or accessibility to athletic, academic, or extracurricular programs what do you think they should do? I do feel that um, most school districts, you know, taking every uh, law and responsibility seriously, that they do take Title IX seriously. So if a parent or a student does feel that they were violated through this, they sh should go through the proper channels, you know, go speak to um, maybe your guidance counselor at first, if it's depending on an academic issue, or go and speak to um, athletic or activities director, if it's an activities or athletic issue, and then go up the proper chain of command to make sure that each issue is dealt with. If, you know, you get to the point where um, 
you feel still that things aren't being handled, that's then the time where you can go, you know, move up the chain a little bit, go to the principal, go to um, the superintendent or an assistant superintendent that's in charge of something, um, or bring it to the board of education to make sure that, you know, as always, and what we always advocate for in PTA, that you are doing what you feel is best for you and for your child in the school. Great, thanks. Well, I wanna thank you for being part of today's podcast. I wanna thank Rob Achero for joining me today. Rob, any final thoughts before we sign off? No, just thank you so much again for letting New Jersey PTA be part of these Legal One podcasts. And we hope that every member of um, PSA and New Jersey PTA learned quite a bit from these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to the Legal One website at www.njpsa.org slash L-E-G-A-L-O-N-E-N-J. If you want more information from NJPTA, their website is www.njpta.org. I thank you for listening to our podcast, and I hope you have a good afternoon and be well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.